Thanks for the coffee. You're welcome. I was forgot to thank you in the morning, but I appreciate you very much. Uh, you're welcome. I love you. I love you too. <clears throat> All right. Chapter 2 His Heart in Action Matthew 14 14 And he had compassion on them <clears throat> What we see Jesus claim with his words in Matthew eleven nineteen or eleven twenty nine we see him prove with his actions time and again in all four gospels. What he is he does. He cannot act any other way. His life proves his heart. When the leper says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean, Jesus immediately stretches out his hand and touches him with the words, I will be clean. The, the word will in both the leper's request and in Jesus' answer is the Greek word for wish or desire. The leper was asking about Jesus' deepest desire and Jesus revealed his deepest desire by healing him. <clears throat> when a group of men brings their paralyzed friend to Jesus, Jesus cannot even wait for them to ask him for what they want. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Before they could open their mouths to ask for help, Jesus couldn't stop himself. Words of reassurance and calm tumbled out. Traveling from town to town, he saw the crowds, and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. So he teaches them, and he heals their diseases. Simply seeing the helplessness of the crowd, pity ignites. This compassion comes in waves over and over again in Christ's ministry, driving him to heal the sick, feed the hungry, teach the crowds, and wipe away the tears of the grieving. The Greek word for compassion is the same in all these texts and refers most literally to the, to the bowels or guts of a person. It's an ancient way of referring to what rises up from one's innermost core. This compassion reflects the deepest heart of Christ. Twice in the Gospels, we are told that Jesus broke down and wept. And in neither case, it is sorrow for himself or his own pains. In both cases, it is sorrow over I don't know why this thing keeps, it just, um, like, stop recording after a while. So, it'll be a few different segments, probably. Twice in the Gospels, we are told that Jesus broke down and wept. And in neither case is it sorrow for himself or his own pains. In both cases, it is sorrow over another. In one case, Jerusalem. And in another, his deceased friend, Lazarus. What was his deepest anguish, the anguish of others? What drew his heart out to the point of tears, the tears of others? Time and again, it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. 
He is, by his enemy's testimony, the friend of sinners. When we take the Gospels as a whole and consider the composite picture given to us of who Jesus is, what stands out most strongly? Yes, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hopes and longings. Yes, he is one whose holiness causes even his friends to fall down in fear, aware of their sinfulness. Yes, he is a mighty teacher, one whose authority outstripped even that of the religious PhDs of the day. To diminish any of these is to step outside a vital historic fact, <clears throat> but the dominant role or but the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels, the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait, is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. Hmm. The Puritan Richard Sibbs put it this way, when Christ saw the people in misery, his gut yearned within him. The works of grace and mercy in Christ, they come from his gut first. That is, whatsoever Christ did, he did it out of love and grace and mercy. He did it inwardly from his very guts, like that. His actions are from, like, like, his deepest heart. The Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. Merciful affections stream from his innermost heart as rays from the sun. But what about the harsher side of Jesus? J.I. Packer once wrote that a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. Saying that if there's a little lie in something, then the whole thing is a lie. This is an especially sensitive point when we are talking about the Bible's revelation of Christ. The heresies of church history are not universally upside-down depictions of Jesus, but simply lopsided ones. The, Christ, the Christological controversies of the early centuries affirmed all basic Christian doctrine except one vital element, sometimes the true humanity of Christ, sometimes his true deity. Are we in danger in talking of the heart of Christ, of neglecting his wrath, extracting one side of Christ to neglect the other? Perhaps for many of us, the danger is subtler than outright heresy. We may be fully orthodox in our theology, but drawn for any number of reasons to one side of Jesus more than the other. Some of us may have been raised in a rule-heavy environment that suffocated us with an endless sense of not measuring up. We are drawn especially to the grace and mercy of Christ. Others of us may have grown up in a chaotic free-for-all and the structure and order of a morally circumcised or a morally circumscribed life flowing from the commands of Christ 
may be especially attractive. They're saying sometimes maybe we grow up super legalistic, lots of rules. Um, so we're really drawn to God's grace. And sometimes if we grew up in like chaotic, like morally screwed up environment, then we'll be attracted to the like more rule heavy <clears throat> type side. Others of us have been deeply mistreated by those who should have been our protectors in life. And we long for the justice and retribution of heaven and hell to make right things, or to make all the wrong things right. As we zero in on the affectionate heart of Christ, how do we ensure that we are growing in a healthy understanding of the whole counsel of God and a comprehensive and therefore proportionate vision of who Christ is? Three comments are needed. <clears throat> first, first, the wrath of Christ and the mercy of Christ are not at odds with one another. Like a seesaw, one diminishing to the degree that the other is held up. He's saying like God's mercy and God's wrath, they don't contradict each other. Rather, the two rise and fall together. They work together. The more robust one's felt understanding of the just wrath of Christ against all that is evil, both around us and within us, the more robust our felt understanding of his mercy. Hmm. It's like the stronger that we feel his wrath, or like the stronger that we understand the evil of the world, the stronger that we understand his mercy. Second, in speaking specifically of the heart of Christ and the heart of God in the Old Testament, we are not really on the wrath-mercy spectrum anyway. His heart is his heart. When we speak of Christ's heart, we are not so much speaking of one attribute alongside another. <clears throat> we are asking who he most deeply is, what pours out of him most naturally. Third, we are simply seeking to follow the biblical witness in speaking of Christ's heart of affection towards sinners and sufferers. In other words, if there appears to be some sense of disproportion in the Bible's portrait of Christ, then let us be accordingly disproportionate. Better to be biblical than artificially balanced. Hmm. Throughout the rest of of our study, we will return to the question of how to square the very heart of Christ with actions of his or biblical statements that may seem to sit awkwardly with it. But the above three points should be borne in mind throughout. In short, it is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated, made too much of, or exaggerated. It cannot be plumbed, it is, but it is easily neglected, forgotten. We draw too little strength from it. We are not leaving behind the harsher side to Jesus as we speak of his very heart. Our sole aim is to follow the Bible's own testimony as we tunnel in to who Jesus most surprisingly is.
Hmm. So they're saying in the rest of the book they're going to be studying like how the heart of Christ this mercy and gentleness how that is reconciled or like how that fits with some of the things that we see in the Bible that seem to contradict it like God's wrath and things maybe from the Old Testament cool I don't know about you but I'm excited and if the actions of Jesus are reflective of who he most deeply is we cannot avoid the conclusion that it is the very fallenness which he came to undo that is most irresistibly attractive to him This is deeper than saying Jesus is loving or merciful or gracious. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. One way to see this is against the backdrop of the Old Testament category of clean and unclean. In biblical terms, these categories generally refer not to physical hygiene, but to moral purity. The two cannot be completely disentangled, but moral or ethical cleanness is the primary meaning. This is evident in that the solution for uncleanness was not taking a bath, but offering a sacrifice. The problem was not dirt, but guilt. The Old Testament Jews, therefore, operated under a sophisticated system of degrees of uncleanness and various offerings and rituals to become morally clean once more. Once, or one particularly striking part of this system is that when an unclean person comes into contact with a clean person, that clean person then becomes unclean. Moral dirtiness is contagious. Consider Jesus. In Levitical categories, he is the cleanest person to ever walk the face of the earth. He was the clean one. What even, or whatever horrors cause us to cringe, we who are naturally unclean and fallen would cause Jesus to cringe all the more. We cannot fathom the sheer purity, holiness, cleanness of his mind and heart, the simplicity, the innocence, the loveliness. And what did he do when he saw the unclean? What was his first impulse when he came across prostitutes and lepers? He moved toward them. Pity flooded his heart, the longing of true compassion. He spent time with them, He touched them. We all can testify to the humanness of touch. A warm hug does something. Warm words of greeting alone cannot. But there is something deeper in Christ's touch of compassion. He was reversing the Jewish system. When Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. Jesus' earthly ministry 
was one of giving back to undeserving sinners their humanity. We tend to think of the miracles of the Gospels as interruptions in the natural order. Yet, let me point out that miracles are not an interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. Wow, that's cool. Miracles are not an interruption, like something wrong or something weird with the natural order, but they are the restoration of the natural order. We are so used to a fallen world that sickness, disease, pain, and death seem natural. In fact, they are the interruption. <clears throat> when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the power of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The Lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. I love that so much. Jesus walked the earth, rehumanizing the dehumanized and cleansing the unclean. Why? Because his heart refused to let him sleep. Oh, wait. Because his heart refused to let him sleep in. <laughs> Sadness confronted him in every town. To wherever he went, wherever or whenever he was confronted with pain and longing, he spread the good contagion of his cleansing mercy. Christ is love covered over in flesh. Picture it. Pull back the flesh on the Stepford Wives or the Terminator and you find Machine. <clears throat> I don't know. Those are movie references, I think. <clears throat> Pull back the flesh on Christ and you find love. If, if compassion clothed itself in a human body and went walking around this earth, what would it look like? We don't have to wonder. But that was when he lived on earth. What about today? Here we remember that the testimony of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Christ who wept at the tomb of Lazarus weeps with us in our lonely despair. The same one who reached out and touched lepers puts his arm around us today when we feel misunderstood. The Jesus who reached out and cleansed messy sinners reaches into our soul and answers our half-hearted plea for mercy with the mighty invincible cleansing of one who cannot bear to do otherwise. In other words, Christ's heart is not far off despite his presence now in heaven, for he does all this by his own spirit. We will give focused attention to the relationship between Christ's heart and the Holy Spirit in chapter 13. For now, we simply note that through the Spirit, Christ himself not only touches us, but lives within us. The New Testament teaches that we are united to Christ, a union so intimate 
that whatever our own body parts do, Christ's body can be said to do. Jesus Christ is closer to you today than he was to the sinners and sufferers he spoke with and touched in his earthly ministry. Through his spirit, Christ's own heart envelops his people with an embrace nearer and tighter than any physical embrace could ever achieve. His actions on earth in a body reflected his heart. The same heart now acts in the same ways toward us, for we are now his body. I love you.